well, you can't oh. see. All right, it seems like we're live and um, we're here with Rakim. So make sure y'all get your notepads ready because it's going to be a lovely show. All right, I'll give you two minutes to find your notepad, find your pen, and get ready. Let's go. Everybody, so I have the opportunity to bring on the great Rakim Sabri. So Rakim has been doing such great things. He is an author, a columnist, a financial coach who focuses on the intersection of financial education and the financial trauma as a barrier to achieving financial empowerment. You actually, if you Google this guy, <laughs> you'll see him all over the place talking about financial trauma. He's been on Experian. He has done TED Talks. He has a book. He's been at FinCon Talks. He's been on Black Enterprise. And actually, he's a constant contributor to thegrio.com. And also, I have to add on here, because you got to add your credentials sometimes, that he is a certified financial educator and education instructor. Um, and it's also his best-selling book, which is called The Financially Irresponsible. So how are you doing today, Rakim? I'm doing good. Thank you. You're welcome. I mean, sorry to put all your accolades out there, but you've been moving, man. You've been doing a lot of things. Um, so we all are here today to talk about financial trauma. And ultimately, like, what is that? Because you say that's your message, but what ultimately is financial trauma? Yeah, so financial trauma has a lot of definitions. Um, I use one that I've created, and it's any instance observed or experienced that has a negative impact on the way that you view, interact with, or believe about money. 
So that creates quite the spectrum, right? You have um, major traumas like interruptions in your income through being laid off or fired from your job, maybe experiencing a eviction or a repossession. And then you have smaller traumas that interact, that rather influence how you interact with money. So maybe that's a bad piece of advice you saw on social media about a particular stock pick or cryptocurrency. And so I like to leave room um, in that spectrum because I think all of us experience some aspect of financial trauma at some point in our life and, and more than experiencing it once, that it's kind of um, something that we can continue experiencing throughout our life. Yeah, because one of the things that I, I think about all the time is that when it comes to finances, usually we tend to only focus on the things that hurt us when we were younger. Um, and usually around the age eight is when we lock in most of our financial, you know, goals or financial habits, shall I say. Because, you know, I've tried to focus on the habits side of the house to get around a lot of the fears. So what are the some of the things that um, or the big traumas that you've encountered uh, with your clients that you've been talking to? Um, you know, interestingly, it's this limiting belief set that says either that won't happen for me um, or that's not for me, right, in terms of reaching a specific financial goal. Uh, I think to your point, when we're younger, <clears throat> excuse me, when we're younger, we get socialized into a kind of a pattern of belief that says, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that at a certain point, what does a realistic goal look like for us? Um, I think that this is significantly more true in communities of color um, or urban communities where it's kind of like, all right, yeah, maybe, you know, one time you believed in being a doctor, but as you get older, it's like, okay, well, what's the realistic job you can go into? And so when you draw parallels between, you know, how you define realistic and what income opportunity looks like or in income potential looks like, um, I think even at those early ages, there's the, the foundation of financial trauma there that says, okay, well, I can't do this, so I'm going to settle for something less. And, um, and that kind of echoes through really every aspect of, of the decisions that we make as it relates to how we interact with money. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, definitely the limiting beliefs is, is what I see the most frequently. Okay. Yeah, because um, one thing that I noticed, I'll just say, I can just talk like how about my mom is it's pretty funny but it's like my mom is usually happy with what she has but just enough and and i'm not sure if this is a financial trauma is inside african-american community or you say black community or black and brown community is that when you see somebody doing better they always the one being taxed on handing out because they want to help um and then also you find yourself being broke usually, even though they might be the first time going to college, the first time actually making the most income, but yet they still living in the same lifestyle um, because they want to help. It's not that they don't want to help and they just don't want to leave anybody else. But I just think like, how can we move on or move forward as a society 
without paying, I guess you could say, quote unquote, that black tax um, as a as a trauma inside our communities? It's a really good question. Um, and, and I don't profess to have the answer, but you know, if I can theorize a little bit, I think some of the burden needs to come off of that like one successful person um, and that we normalize what success looks like across the, the broader sphere of what our community looks like. Um, and then on the other end, I think that there is something to be said about giving back to your community, right? In, in whatever shape that takes. The problem with this framing, giving back to the community, is that oftentimes that giving back is equated with uh, some kind of monetary exchange. And so how do we define as a community giving back um, outside of the lens of me giving you the money that I've worked hard to make? And so, um, you know, what does that look like? That can look like the sharing of skills that can look like the sharing of information that can look like the sharing of network, um, especially as someone who accomplishes a certain level of education or notoriety, right? The social circle, social circles and influences that you will have access to are likely to be greater than that of the people that you grew up with or around. And so um, I think Broadening our perspective around what giving back looks like, as well as taking the burden off of the one person, right, the exception to the rule, and normalizing what success looks like across the community is probably, in my opinion, the best way to move forward. Mm. Okay. My approach was to just move away. <laughs> just get a new circle. And, and that happens. I mean, that, that's, that's a reality. <laughs> yeah. But, because but it's I like, think, you know, yeah. to, to your point, like, what does that then do for the community, right? And so there's like the assimilation into, and it's a difficult place to be in, and, and I've been in this place, yeah. the assimilation into what is the dominant, popular, white culture, right, that says this is how you define success, and these are the people that you need to be around in order to be successful, um, and the alienation that occurs from the people that you grew up with or around thinking that you feel like you're better than them because you've accomplished more than they've been able to accomplish. And, um, you know, that's a difficult place to be in. And it's still, I mean, there's aspects of that that I navigate today. Um, I moved away from home. And in moving away from home, it was my exposure to banking. It was my exposure to um, individuals who had purchased property that were close to my age. It was my exposure to conversations about credit and retirement and life insurance and all of those things. And so um, I, I don't know that if I would have stayed home, I would have had that same exposure. But I know that having that exposure has been life changing for me. And um, at the very least, I mean, the lowest hanging fruit, being able to conceptualize and follow through on the purchasing of property. Um, and, and I haven't moved back home, but I'm not so far away from home that it's like, I can't go back. Um, and it's not a situation where I haven't gone back and social media makes the world a little bit smaller in that you can reach out and touch people that are from your previous community and share in the way that I'm, you know, articulating, 
um, whatever it might be through resources, through information, through, I mean, if you want to give money through money and, um, you know, now living in this post COVID world, I mean, the world is even smaller, right? We've all gotten used to zoom and, you know, the online video mediums for communication. So, um, I, I really don't think that there's an excuse and that moving away is necessarily the solve anymore. Uh, yeah, because I'm thinking now, as we get older, like you said, the technology kind of bridges that gap. Um, but also, how do we, I know these these are big questions um, and things that I don't expect us to solve the world problems today. Um, but it's just trying to reach those who feel like they're in a rut. Because a lot of people feel as though they're broke and they're poor. And they that's how they grew up. And some people stay in that same mindset and go on that same, as you could say, generational wheel. And trying to break that wheel is kind of where we come in as from understanding from the financial um, education piece, but not just from the education, but more so the mindset. And as you diving into the psychology of the black and brown people, um, what is it that one thing that is your takeaway to, as you could say, that you saw that was the most motivator to get people going? I don't know that I understand the question. Can you just rephrase it for me? Yeah. Um, so what is it that one thing that gets people motivated to start changing their lifestyle? Um, I'm going to challenge your question or, or rather the language in your question, because I think, you know, motivation is definitely kind of external, right? Um, yeah. And I think that that change comes from within. Um, and so I often talk about, you know, people ask, how do you overcome financial trauma? And I use the three E's, right? The, the exposure, education, execution. Mm -hmm. And so I just think about, you know, my journey and realizing that something exists, right? And that thing that exists was the potential to purchase property or um, learning the value of building credit in conjunction with being able to purchase property. Um, basically being able to see that something is attainable because somebody else did it. Um, and that's why I think representation really matters because if I see another millennial black man or black woman do this thing, it's like, oh, wait, you know, to that point of the one successful person, well, how, do, how do we normalize this? How do we make this a thing that everybody's doing or that everybody wants to do? Um, so there's that piece. Um, and then there's the education piece, which, you know, you touched on and, and, you know, I'm definitely an advocate for education, particularly financial education, but I just find that financial education falls short in the way that it is delivered um, and the way that it's taught to us to then go teach to our communities, right? A lot of um, people are of the belief that financial education would solve our problem around the wealth gap and what ownership looks like and um, just making poor money decisions. But what I've found over the years is that there are people who know that they should be doing better um, and people who know that they could be doing better. They know what to do. 
but they're in a survival modality or and or they have a poverty mindset that says, okay, well, I need to make this this money stretch until the next paycheck. So what are the things that I'm going to do to make that happen? Um, what are the things that I'm not going to pay for? What are the things that I'm going to pay for? And what are the vices that I have that make this situation a little bit more bearable? I think that variable is often left out of the equation. And so, um, you know, years ago, I, I co-founded a nonprofit on the premise of ending homelessness. That was our, our big goal. And, um, you know, when we talk about homelessness and kind of deconstructing the stigma that exists around why people end up being homeless, a lot of what comes to mind when you think of a homeless person is somebody who is either addicted to some drug or addicted to alcohol or, you know, lazy, they don't want to get a job. Instead of seeing that there is a series of events, right, a series of backslides that put that person in that position. And so with the, you know, $5, $10, $20 that they scrape up, how they um, navigate their current circumstances through using vices like drugs and alcohol is a very much more realistic um, and, and human approach to how people end up in that situation than just assuming that, oh, well, because this person has a problem with drugs and alcohol, they're homeless. Um, and, and homelessness is a spectrum. And I mean, we could have a whole segment on what that looks like, but I think putting that in the frame of people's mental condition um, as it relates to money, as it relates to the beliefs that they hold, as it relates to operating in survival, there are instances where, you know, we hear this narrative across social media where the millennials are out buying Starbucks and avocado toast and, you know, they would save their money and, you know, invested instead that they would be able to be millionaires. And, and, you know, that's BS, right? Like I can enjoy my, and I don't eat avocado toast, but for the sake of this this conversation, right. I can enjoy my avocado toast and my Starbucks and still be focused on building wealth. But, what is it that buying my avocado toast and my Starbucks is doing for me in this moment that allows for me to weather maybe the, the, the politics game and the microaggressions that I have to deal with in a corporate environment or the stress of being a full-time entrepreneur and that, you know, maybe that's my little five minutes of heaven that allow for me to, to move on. So I think um, in addition to education and the exposure piece that we need to have empathy. Um, as mm. educators, we need to have empathy to, to where people are, um, to what they've come out of, and um, and what they believe is possible for themselves in the future. Okay, so to make sure I get the three E's, can you just reiterate what those are again? In the so three E's are exposure, education, and execution. Okay. And there's power in each one of those. And each one of them seem like they will take you to that next level. Man. Sure. How did you come up with these? Uh, <laughs> um, so I have a I have a unique teaching style, right? Very uh provocative in nature. And so I kind of I have a pulse on what catches people's attention, right? How how certain phrasing um or literary techniques right alliteration or or you know whatever works to kind of make things stand out in people's mind 
but beyond that, it, it's been my experience. So, you know, I talk about growing up experiencing poverty and, you know, having, you know, witnessed my mom on Section 8 and with food stamps and believing that, okay, when I get to the age of independence, that I'm going to go out and do that same thing. And so exposure was meeting somebody who was within five years of my age who owned property. And it's like, well, hold on a second. If this person can do it, why can't I do it? And then education was learning what it takes to accomplish that thing because now I know it's attainable. And then execution was taking that thing that I learned and applying it, right? And, and you know, oftentimes, I would go as far as to say almost all the time, right? The execution piece is the hardest because that's where you have to come face to face with your own limiting beliefs. So, you know, back to your question around motivation, right? Yeah, I can be motivated to go out and do this thing, right? Because somebody else did it or because I have the education to, um, to understand the process. But, you know, what I'm worrying about the what if scenarios, and how the situation could go wrong. Or I'm worried about the real life situation of, you know, potentially losing my income or not having enough money to cover an emergency. And, you know, you stand that up next to the privilege of somebody else's experience who doesn't have those same concerns. That can stop you in your tracks, no matter how, you know, um, attractive this idea is or how educated you are on the process or how motivated you are and so you really have to do the inner work of silencing you know those voices that will take you away from accomplishing that goal and um and not everybody is willing to do that or not everybody is capable of doing that on their own they might need Mm -hmm. some hand holding some community building some support to kind of push them in that direction and I've been fortunate to have a great support system throughout this journey. Yeah, because you've mentioned having a support system uh, during your TED Talk um, and the power of having a support system throughout your journey and the exposure that it provides you. Um, how do you find your support, your support team? You said, how did I find it? Uh, so, so I think it's less about finding and more about like curating, right? Carefully mm-hmm. selecting the people that you um, allow to feed you. Um, so who who are you having conversations with? What do those conversations sound like? Are they understanding of your aspirations and your goals? Um, are they encouraging you or are they discouraging you? And um, you know, a lot of my support systems kind of built in through family um or our family that i've chosen right people that have been around for a long time and who are just like you know what i can't tell you the number of times that somebody in my support system has shared with me well rakim if anybody can do it you can mm-hmm. and so um all of those things matter and i think it's really kind of holistic right i'm not curating this group or the support system just for the purposes of financial gain um these people need to feed the different aspects of my existence, you know, my life. So um, I think, you know, when given this advice, I, I think about how networking is taught to people, right? And you're always looking for, well, how can this person benefit me? Right. And what is the value, right, that I have to present? But um, sometimes it's not even about looking for 
you know, an end, right? It's not, sometimes it's not about looking for an angle. Sometimes it's just organic interactions where people want to see you do well. And um, I believe that the energy that you put out into the world, you get back. And so I've, I've always kind of strived to be a good person. And, um, you know, I, I won't say that I've not been burned in some relationships or interactions with people but you know those are learning experiences that tell yeah. you the kind of people to stay away from and reaffirm the kind of people that you should have in your corner yeah having those um and that's interesting that you say curate because i i do find myself that i try to figure out a way how i can add value um, and when I met you at first, I was like, who is this guy? Everybody else knew who you were. I was like, I don't know this guy. <laughs> it's like, but as I'm starting to learn and start hearing your message a little bit more, I was like, okay, now I see why everybody choose uh, to have you in their circle, um, in their circle of trust, their circle of um, engagement when it comes to just changing the mindset and actually challenging a lot of people to think a little bit differently. Uh, than what they do on a day-to-day, um, even inside of financial space. We all kind of get in our own little box sometimes, even though we think it's kind of vast, but it's, it's really not. <laughs> um, so going back to the trauma side of the house, um, you talked about being on food stamps. Um, I myself was actually on food stamps for, i say, like a month just to see how it was. Not to just see how it was, but it was like, uh, I was a teacher at the time. They don't make money. So I qualified. I was like, check. <laughs> so give me some money. Um, I ate good during that time frame. Um, but any other time, I'm, I'm eating like maybe one meal or maybe two. And, you know, going through, I know side saddling here, rambling a little bit, but um, getting back to my childhood trauma, which was, Growing up without having the lights on, I remember the days of, you know, we'll go to the grocery store just for AC or we'll go to the mall because uh, during the summer times, the AC was out and at night it was a little cooler so we can actually go to bed and so forth. So my mom used to do that a lot. Um, And then what she would also do is um, try to make sure she didn't repeat the things that she uh, was brought up with, which was um, making her own clothes for her brothers and sisters. And so when we got older as kids, she tried to make sure that we weren't bullied in school or picked on in school. So she wanted to make sure she buy us the latest and greatest or work that second or third job to support us. And to the point when I got older, I started working like two or three or four jobs because I was like, well, my mom did it while going to school. And then as I got older, I realized, like, I don't really need all these jobs. I just need a job to make some money <laughs> and cut all the time out. And then, like, I had more time to do the things that I want to do. Um, so how did you actually get beyond your hurdle with your financial trauma that you were going through? Yeah, I, um, man, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I've been wrestling with this concept of luck, right? Mm. Um, I grew up not believing in luck and Mm. being told not to believe in luck. And to a degree, I still don't. Like, to a large degree, I still don't. But I just think of how fortunate 
I have been in certain instances to have certain experiences by being in the right place at the right time um, and recognizing the right opportunity. And so, you know, my childhood or not really my childhood, but more so like my teenage years were difficult, right? You know, navigating the separation of my parents and what kind of stress and trauma that put on me as the oldest child and the relationship that I have with my siblings or the relationship that I had with the other parent who, you know, in this case is my dad. Um, and then also navigating this financial trauma, right, of becoming aware of the fact that we have food stamps and we have Section 8 and, you know, we have to do what we have to do to survive. And so there was very much like a survival mode activated that didn't really allow me the space to recognize what all was happening um, or to process my feelings. And I don't think that that's something that's unique to me, right? I think that people live that reality every day. And for some people, like, they never get a break. They never get the opportunity to sit back and reflect on, well, how did all of this influence the person that I am today? Um, But on the back end of that, um, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't share that I've had a very strong foundation um, and foundational support through my grandfather Um, my grandfather specifically as I was growing up and that, you know, we've done spaces together where I talk about poverty and, you know, the root of poverty is um, an old French word that means a wretched state, right? So poverty is is mental. I have, and I often describe my experience as experiencing aspects of poverty. I never say that I was in poverty, right? Or that I am Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because I because yeah. my mind was never of, of a poverty, you know, of, of poverty in nature, right? Um, there was always a spark. There was always uh, a desire to do more, to be more, to experience more. I just didn't know how to connect those dots. And so there was a point in time where my mom wanted to relocate. She was just like, you know, New York has been great, but I want to try something different. And she gave me and my siblings the opportunity to go with her. Um, So she wanted to move across country to Texas. And she said, hey, you guys all have a choice. What do you want to do? And so my siblings decided they wanted to stay in New York with my father. And I decided that I would go with her to Texas. And it was very scary, you know, choice, right? I'm leaving everything that I know, including my grandfather, who had been such a big part of, you know, who I was at that time and who ultimately I would become um, my siblings who I've always had, you know, been there for. And so very a, a redefining experience for me to say the least, but I made that choice. And through making that choice, there was just kind of like a ripple effect of situations that um, ultimately landed me on this path, right? I ended up moving to Texas. I was there for eight months and ended up moving back up North to Connecticut I needed a job, so I started working in the supermarket, and then I found a job in banking, and then I was doing the supermarket and the banking thing at the same time. And yep, that's and multiple I, jobs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's when I met my manager, and my manager, um, you know, she hired me, and she was the one who owned the the house at the time, and I'm just like, oh, how do we do that? So it's just like, 
you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna take a step back and I'm not gonna call it luck. I'm gonna call it what it is. Um, I believe definitely I've been favored that there that my path has been guided um, spiritually. I think that spirituality plays a big role in what my success has looked like. Um, it's not luck. Um, I believe everything happens for a reason. And so, you know, taking off the politically correct hat, right, and just saying that um, my path has been guided forever, and I'm just really following following that path. And so um, believing in whatever, right, the unknown, the unseen, the, this power that guides our steps, that guides our footsteps, I, I think that I was put here for a, a reason and that all of the work that I've done up until this point um, has been in line with that reason. So um, that's my answer uh, for what success has looked like for me. Um, but I think that through articulating that experience, what I can share with anybody who's listening or anybody that will listen is that um, environment matters, right? Um, recognizing opportunity matters. Taking action on that opportunity matters. But I also think that, you know, your purpose matters. And if you can't see bigger than you, if you can't see your purpose beyond the four walls of your experience or the street corner that you live on or, you know, the neighborhood that you grew up in, then you're doing yourself a disservice, but you're also doing the world a disservice because the world might need you. Yeah. So, yeah, because we talked about the environment and moving around and also, like you said, that unit or those group of people that you select to choose to have in your lifestyle um, or in your life and around you. And also the fact that you actually kept your family in your circle uh, and made them part of your life. That's very powerful right there. Uh, a lot of people, I guess, in our community usually grow up without seeing their father or being around their father as often. Uh, usually the mom is the one that's left. Um, it's a typical story that we all, <laughs> we all are very familiar with. Um, so what is it that would, because um, we do have a lot of people now with children, uh, especially in our age range. What is it that could actually help take those people as they bring up their children to, I gotta say, let me rephrase it, whole thing. How do we even, is there, is there a life without financial trauma? How about that? Because then they'll um, dive into the generational. I don't think so. Um, okay. I don't think so. Not in today's society. With the values that are placed on this consumer economy and capitalism and the way that it exists and the way that it's practiced here in the United States, um, you know, just navigating capitalism as an economic system in the way that it's practiced is a traumatic experience, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are being bombarded with advertisement <laughs> and scarcity, right? That says buy now or mm -hmm. it's going to cost double in two weeks, right? Um, buy now at this discount. And so you're being nudged in the direction of making decisions that ultimately have an impact on 
your money or your beliefs about money or what um, your interaction with money looks like. It is influencing um, the relationships that you have, right? One of the biggest causes of divorce are issues of finance, right? It's, in, it's interacting or rather it's influencing the relationship between uh, parents and their children, right? When you see parents arguing or fighting over child support and uh, what custody looks like. Um, it impacts where you go to school and what you learn. It impacts what kind of job you get when you get out of school. And, you know, now the big topic that everybody's talking about is, you know, student loan debt and, you know, the forgiveness that's going around. But like this whole generation of, of people who went and took out all of these loans that they had no plan for paying back other than being told, well, you know, you'll get a good enough job and you'll be able to pay it back. Right. And how that has an impact on your ability to do other things, right? Like buy property or, um, you know, if you're not in good standing with your student loans, maybe that has an impact on your credit. The role of credit in everyday decisions, right? Whether or not you can get a job, what your insurance looks like, whether or not you can get a place to live. And so in, in this current economic system, and I don't know of a better one, right? I, I don't have a solution other than learning how to play this game and um, learning how to play it well. But in this current economic system, there is trauma at every turn. So I think the best way to navigate that, particularly as a parent, is to first acknowledge that it exists and then take inventory of how your financial traumas influence your behaviors and your attitudes and your beliefs about money um, and what your children may or may not mirror from you, despite your best effort, right? Um, so you talked about the the lengths in which your mom went to make sure that you and your siblings were good, but how seeing that struggle influenced your relationship with working, right? Or I talk about how um, seeing my mom on Section 8 and food stamps influenced what I aspire for as an independent adult. Mm -hmm. So we have to be conscious not only in what it is that we say, but what it is that we show. And if we right. can't show any better, to articulate why we can't show any better in that this is what I'm having to do right now, but this is what you should be aspiring to do later. And I think that, that, that that's huge. I think you know that will go very far. Yeah. Um... And that's one of the things is that I always try to talk about is that our parents only show us what they're comfortable with doing, not with what they know, because that ultimately helps them to do something that, you know, they're not scared of. So when you come up as a child, like, well, I just heard about this in school. I want to go do this. And your parents are like, no, nah, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> you're going to be, you'll be sorry you did that. But uh, I wonder if it's they having a flashback of a child like trauma that they feel as though this is something that they need to kind of hold on to and not share this experience with you um, as a child. So it's one of those interesting topics. I don't know. We dive into a lot of stuff. <laughs> so um, one of the things that I, I'll talk about um, or actually, I want to get your opinion on. 
Um, there is a research that was done that was showing us that financial education inside the household actually helps with poverty because for one, they are able to, people who actually are financial literate or actually have a good understanding of money, their children ultimately are able to articulate, they use bigger words, they use more descriptive words. They actually talk about how to grow themselves and instead of without financial literacy inside the household, they notice like they'll show a picture of a dog and a child would just say dog. But a person with financial literacy or something like that, they would notice that the person would say, oh, it's a Rottweiler. Oh, it's a Labradoodle. They actually go into detail that way. Um, and so understanding that type of, sci not Scientology, <laughs> understanding that psychological aspect of finances and a correlation with education. Um, what is your take on teaching the adults versus teaching the children first? Um, I'm going to blow this question up only because <laughs> that's, that's my style, right? So I don't think that, or rather, I think that poverty is intentional, right? So I don't think that any amount of financial education is going to eradicate poverty because poverty is a necessary part of this economic system, right? There's the haves and the have nots. That said, um, as a financial educator, I know that that's a really big statement for me to make. And so I'm not downplaying the value of financial education in um, particularly in underprivileged communities. But when you look at an underprivileged community, you have to ask yourself the question, well, why are they underprivileged, right? Is it just yeah. the refusal to learn how money works? I don't think so, right? Because <laughs> we know how money works. Um, yeah. It's the fact that we don't have money. It's the mm -hmm. fact that we don't have opportunities to access money. Um, it's the fact that we don't have money being passed down generationally. And so this issue is probably more structural and systemic than it is educational in that, well, why is money a taboo topic? Um, why is there mistrust, particularly in the black community as it relates to financial institutions? Why, 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 right? There's the rabbit hole of yeah. whys. And so, um, you know, now going back into your question, having kind of created that context, if you will, it, the question the blown up, right? It doesn't matter who you teach, yeah. right? I, I was exposed to uh, the stock market and learning about the stock market when I was still in um, middle school. Mm. But I didn't start investing until after I was 21 years old. Why? Well, I didn't have money to invest. Yep. Right. And while I was being taught about the stock market, I was also navigating poverty. So mm -hmm. could that lesson really stick? You're teaching kids about how to invest for their retirement when they're worried about what they're going to eat for dinner. Right. So um, yeah. 
it's a difficult question to answer, but it, you know, if I'm going to play by the rules here, I think, um, yes, obviously the earlier you introduce financial education, the earlier that that financial education can, can take root and you can start, um, seeing that the exhibition of that learning and the behaviors that, you know, children have, um, you can start teaching them about delayed gratification versus instant gratification. You can start teaching them about trading time for money or how to avoid trading time for money. You can start teaching them about um, what long-term planning looks like, whether that be for their education or their retirement. You can take them to the bank and show them you know, how to make deposits. And, and, and I think all of those things are great things. But I don't think that if the legions of black and brown people in this country started doing that with their children, that that automatically going to change or eradicate poverty because I think poverty is designed. And so- It's um, a capitalist system, Lee. Say again? It's a capitalist system. It's, it's part of the- Yeah, it's, it's part, it's of, part the, of the society. So then, yeah. so then yeah. it becomes a race for, well, how far away can you get from poverty? Mm more so than how do we eradicate poverty in the, in the first place. And, and that opens up, I mean, so many other dialogues, right? We talk about um, classism yep. and what that might look like within the black community, what that does look like within the black community. Um, we got it, man. About, um, just to your point earlier, does that mean leaving, leaving the hood and going into the nice areas, right? The nice areas, meaning the white areas, um, so that your child can get a better education, so that your child can, can be away from the negative influences that might lead them down a path of destruction. And so I think it's important to know at this point in the conversation too, that oftentimes when we talk about the black experience, that a lot of times people equate that with poverty. And there are a lot of thriving Black people, right? Black doesn't mean poverty. Brown doesn't mean poverty. Um, and so, you know, how do we how do we break that illusion of association? Um, I mean, like I said, this this can go in so many different directions, and um, I, I I don't want to take up <laughs> nah, about that rabbit hole, but I think you know it's so much more sophisticated than. You know, do we introduce financial education as children or as an adult? Yeah, because one of the those rabbit holes of the why, and I think a lot of us in the financial space don't spend enough time in the why, because we talk about do this, you'll get these results. It's almost like we're talking about it like a fitness instructor. Like you see the biggest loser, the reason why it's so impactful is because they talk about the why. Why did you get this far? Like, or how did this even happen? Um, how did you level, like, wind up in this particular situation to then now let's, okay, now that we understand your why or like how you got here, now understand, like, okay, why do you still live with this? And they usually say, you walking around with like 200 pounds of weight on you. We're going to have you run in 200 additional pounds. And then as they lose the weight, it's like, remember, you used to weigh this and move with this uh, weight on them to the point now it's like, we, I'm going to say, I'm noticing that a lot of the financial people are 
they're just going down that route. And I, I don't want to go that route um, because I have I have a belief that we need to actually sit down and actually have these conversations. We, you and I, we, we saw at FinCon, it was only like, what, uh, maybe three, 400 of us <laughs> out of a 3,000 out of conference. I mean, not 3,000 out of, but a 300 uh, person conference. And to understand that, yes, we are minority in that particular situation, but also we are people of color that come from almost similar backgrounds that either A, took ourselves out of the environment that we were in, and now we're still trying to figure out how do we reach more? And I think that was a common message across all of us. It's like, how do we reach more people um, to get themselves out of their trauma, out of their rut that they're in um, and change their mindset? For me personally, uh, I actually talk about the habit side of the house because that's the side of fear is to start building habits. Let's keep going. Um, let's figure out a way that you can kind of something that you can stick to. If you don't want rotten teeth, teeth falling out, right, you're going to build a habit to brush your teeth. That's the goal. Um, and then from you, from the trauma side, and that's the reason why I love your message and I appreciate everything that you're doing, which is bringing the light to the financial space, which is covered by mostly white males when we think about finances. Like when you think about a, the rich person, you always think about like a older white guy, but we don't talk about some of the black people that are rich as well. Um, and then understanding it's like, hey, well, why you have this opportunity, which goes back to your luck. I'm sorry, I'm summarizing everything that you just encompassed here. No, but we keep it, keep we dive into everything. So, it goes to like uh, understanding of, all right, now that we're starting to see more people, um, more black people or more people of color talking about finances, now that we're starting to have more open discussions around the table, even at the cookouts, like for me personally, like everybody knows when I'm showing up at a cookout or someplace, I'm down to talk about budgeting. I'm down to talk about money all day long. Uh, some different strategies that they could use or different strategies that are out there or taxes that are coming up, like all these things to now it's common. It's not, oh, I don't want to talk to him because that's all he want to talk about. Yeah, we can shoot the stuff or whatever, but, you know, ultimately, you know where, where I'm at. Like, don't talk to me because you decided not to go down the path. I, we put a plan together. You decided to go against the green. Um, and now you're going back to where you started from again. So then you lose friends that way, but they don't want to talk to you. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. But it's like, I wonder if we are a glutton for, for trauma. And you wrote about that. Um, I, I was looking at this article that you wrote back in 2021 that says how Black trauma may be impacting the way we spend money. Um, and I'm going to share that with everybody so everybody can see this because I think it's, and also, so you can remember, I know it's been a long time ago. <laughs> Pull that up. <laughs> All right, so there you go, if you can see it. Um, so you wrote this back in, <laughs> wow, it's almost, yeah, it's almost a year ago, uh, on the Grio. Um, and one of the things that you talked about was just off the first rip, like you just giving it in, just you <laughs> kill play games. So acknowledging the issues around the lack of financial literacy is one problem, 
but it's not the only issue that impacts Black dollars. Uh, as financial empowerment coach, I've been learning and I've been leaning into a less popular, but arguably a most impactful aspect of financial education, and that's the money mindset. I'm reading this because when I put this for audio, people can actually understand what it is. So, um, and then before you, you answer that question, I want to just say hi to the folks that are here. Let's say, hey, Mama Barbara, good seeing you. Thanks for joining. Hey, Carla and D3, thank you guys for coming through. So you're talking about this mindset. So where did, I mean, just off the topic, um, the title alone, what what is the black trauma? Um, I mean that that's a rabbit hole in and of itself, right? <laughs> we got a lot of rabbit holes, right? <laughs> yeah, there is. Yes. And, and, and but I think that's the problem, right? We don't talk about it. It's just like, oh, it's too much to get into, or we don't want to, um, you know, pull the race card, or you know, we want to be PC and kind of like forget about it, right? Forget about the past. But the past is very relevant and continues to surface in, in our present. So foundationally in this work that I've done, um, while I was writing my book, Financially Irresponsible, I was reading the book, Post-Traumatic Sleeve Syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGruy, um, which was her thesis work um, where she talks about the post-traumatic stress um, being passed down generationally from slavery um, in this country and then going into Jim Crow and then just continuing, right? There's just been like this barrage in that we talked about earlier today um, how some people never get a break in their lifetime. Yeah. But when you, when you, uh, extend that out over generations and and Dr. DeGroy can point to how that generational trauma then resurfaces in each generation afterwards we realize you know going back to that question that you asked me right we realize that the education doesn't address or doesn't heal those wounds right and so Black trauma, um, and you know the way that you asked the question, right, is varied, right? It's it's the experience of having to survive today. It's the experience of our ancestors having to survive yesterday. It's the 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 deep uh, damage to our identity in this country from slavery, right? Um, the stripping of language and culture and religion and names. And then the brutal abuse, like physical and psychological abuse that we had to endure over the course of, of, of that time that continues to, I don't want to say haunt us because it's not a haunting, but it continues to afflict us in the way that we interact with one another today, right? In the way that we um, interact with other black businesses in the way that, you know, I talked about the limiting beliefs in the beginning of this conversation and the way that we believe what is, what is possible for us today. And then, you know, as I got deeper into this work, I picked up the book, 
The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson, which I believe was also his thesis work. Um, and he was the founder of Black History Week, which turned into Black History Month, um, talking about how we are intentionally socialized from the time that we start school through our entire lives going up into corporate America and beyond to believe or to accept this idea of black inferiority in comparison to everybody else. Mm -hmm. So not only are we dealing with generational traumas from years previous, right? From generations previous, but we're also dealing with the trauma of being told that you are undesirable. You are the lowest rung of the ladder socially. You are worthless. You are not educated. You do not deserve have to have money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But also having everybody else in the world be socialized to believe the same thing. And so not only is it a self-fulfilling prophecy in that we accept this black inferiority, but it's, it's, uh, it's this imposed belief on us by people who are not black um, that says you are the lowest rung on the ladder, right? You are not worthy of respect. You're not worthy of protection. You're not worthy of safety. You're not worthy of love. You're not worthy of wealth. And so, you know, you put all of that into a ball and everything else that comes with it. And, and you ask me a question, you ask me a question and I'm not, I'm not coming at you, but I'm just saying, you ask me a question. No, what is black trauma, right? Well, th that's black right. trauma. Being black. Is, it's trouble. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell me about it. And then there's also, yeah, we can go more into that. That's a whole other podcast. <clears throat> because it's like colorism within the Black community and so forth. Because um, my mom is here, and she you wouldn't even know that she's my mom. She's a lot lighter than I am. So my mom, she says, hi, everyone. Great people have to want and hunger for financial independence. Um, I know she's using her cell phone to type this in, so I ain't gonna judge her on the context, but I know what she means. It's like, you have to really want, you have to really want it and actually to put effort uh, into making it happen. Um, Mario, on it today. All right, I like it, with no drinks. You got Jamal in here, thank you for coming on, sir. We didn't do the drink session, but I know you just put the baby away, it's cool. Right. <laughs> All right, uh, you got a quick second for Poddex? Say it again. Yeah, a moment for Poddex? I don't know what that is, but yeah, I got time. You don't know what go. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> you just gotta go. <laughs> All right, let's hold on. Uh, let's get this going. This episode is powered by Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience and have more meaningful conversations, you're going to want to check out Poddex. Now, if you want to get 10% off your order right now, you can go to poddex.com and type in coupon code, what's the code? Yes, that's the code. Check out poddex.com, take your podcast to the next level. All right, you guys, so y'all know. So when it comes to Poddex, uh, just use the promo code WALLET and you actually get 10% off of your first order. Uh, it's on the store. You get the physical decks that I got up here 
or you get the digital one. Also, it's on the phone. So the question that I have for you, out of this deck, um, it's called the WTF deck. And it says, what is a crazy event that you have ever been to? What is a what? I didn't, I didn't the craziest event that you've ever been to. Um, what is the craziest event you ever been to? I guess that depends on how you define crazy, right? Um, I'm just I'm searching through my memory things very quickly. So there was a time I went to. Uh, I went to. I was brought to a club. Um, I was still living in New York at the time, mm -hmm. and uh, I had been drinking, so I, I really didn't know which way it was up. But it was like this, it was during that period of time where Jersey Shore was really popular, and um, it was like some techno, like, bro club, and I'm sitting there with no money, drunk in the club watching all of these guys dancing and taking their shirt off and posing and fist bumping. And I'm like, where am I? Like, what am I even doing here? <laughs> the most miserable time ever. <laughs> and I was like, how did I even get here? I don't even remember how I got home to be honest, but um, yeah, that was, that was pretty crazy for me. Nice. I have to say the one time my craziest place was uh went to Miami. Uh me and my buddies we were just kinda like hanging out and you know, just bar hopping. Didn't think anything of it. Went into one bar and the next thing you know, somebody walked past in all patent leather. And it was like, What? And then next thing you know, other people on poles and cages started coming out the ceiling. It was like <laughs> <laughs> Deuces, we out of here. Like, yeah, that that was the craziest that I ever been. Um, those type of places. But yeah. Uh, all right. So I think we can pretty much wrap it up because it's hit that one hour mark. Um, is there anything? Um, because I usually do this for the interview, uh, for the pre-recorded stuff. Um, which is I ask this question. Where do you see yourself in the next two years? Um, I see, I see myself doing doing what I'm doing now, just bigger and better. Um, I built a, a nice digital brand for myself. Um, I like to see that continue to grow. Uh, I like to see myself go on a book tour, uh, and and you know some future book that I create. I like to see. Um, definitely all monetizable, you know, activities, right? So not doing any work for free that I don't want to, um, <laughs> doing a lot, doing a lot more speaking, impacting more people's lives. Um, and, and, and I see that happening definitely within two years. So, um, I'll just, I'll keep my foot on the gas and, and keep doing this work. Awesome. So I asked that question because every person that came on the show that answered that question usually achieve it within the first six months. So, um, and that's the power of actually putting it out there in the universe and being on the show. 
<laughs> just say it. Uh, so we do have one question that came in um, last minute, it looks like. So this is Jessica Kennedy. We actually met on a cruise. That's pretty cool. Uh, her and her husband, awesome people. Uh, but they said on here is that I think it's hard to know where to start um, to break away from financial trauma. The obvious is good to school, get good, oh, go to school, get good grades, go to college, get a career, but still land you into a paycheck. Oh, into like a, I guess, living paycheck to paycheck. And I, I think we kind of dove into that, which was talking about how to, um, you know, education isn't enough. And I think that's what uh, you and I were just talking about a little bit more, unless you want to expand on her her comment here. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, that we need to blow up that illusion, right? That you have to go to school, get a good job, you know, take out the student loans, all that stuff, live paycheck to paycheck. And, and that's where I think financial education, it does have a benefit, right? If you can learn how to take the money that you are making and make that money work for you through investing, through saving, through budgeting, to your point, through um, leveraging credit responsibly, um, you can kind of carve yourself out an existence that looks like not being paycheck to paycheck, right? Um, I think this entire conversation was definitely necessary, but I don't want it to be viewed as um, discouraging financial education or the pursuit of a financial education. I think it's important to recognize history. I think it's important to recognize culture. I think it's important to meet people where they are and lead with empathy. Um, but I don't think that those things should stop you or act as obstacles that you can't maneuver around or through um, in your pursuit of financial independence. And so, um, you know, I think, I think that that's a really great question. But, you know, focusing on this idea of the accumulation of assets, again, learn how to play the game, right? The accumulation of assets, yeah. um, you know, limiting the liabilities unless your assets pa are paying for those liabilities. Uh, paying yourself first, um, learning, you know, the right places to put your money, right? Ha understanding what risk tolerance looks like, understanding what market cycles and fluctuations look like, being able to understand your emotions as it relates to money and how those emotions influence the decisions that you make financially. All of those things are important. Um, but my presence in this space is definitely more geared towards the conversation that we had and saying, hey, this is a big part of the equation that we're not talking about, that we need to be yeah. talking about, because you can't get on this stage or on this podcast or in this venue and tell me that as a Black man, I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps, right? And so right. this is the history of why I don't have bootstraps to pull myself up by. And I'm doing the best that I can with what I have. And then I think that creates an avenue for other Black financial creators to then do the educating piece and saying, okay, now that we know the history, now that we know the lay of the land, let me put you onto the game. This is how we navigate through playing that game while acknowledging that those, op those obstacles exist. I mean, I really wish my... Uh... 
my stuff was connected. Cause that's that's definitely a round of applause on that one, sir. It's like mic drop ever. <laughs> <laughs> because you do hear about that, but in a in this financial space, and you hear that often. Um, and honestly, my mom was, and this is was one of those women who were dealing with that uh that check the check and actually the lights being cut off. And I don't even think she was saving at the time. It was just trying to pay bills, you know, with a household of five people. You know, she's just trying to make it happen. So, and I know Jessica's going through something similar, but, you know, we, not similar in the sense of, like, I'm not sure what her financial markup is, but, you know, you got a kid, you got a husband, and you're trying to make life happen, you know, for your kids to make sure your kids have the, the best um, that you can offer them with what you have. And trying to get to that next level, granted, you hear a lot of people talk about this stuff, like, hey, save a little, save this. It's like, if you really sit down and think about it, you, you really need that seed money. And I talked about it a little bit, um, but you need that seed money. That seed money can be $1 a paycheck until you get comfortable. Then you start moving up to $5. See what that look like. And start moving in that direction. You just got to get comfortable, start building those habits up, start building those, um, like I said, the strong financial habits. This is all I talk about. You got to think about how can you start small. And once you understand how to handle the small stuff, when the money pours in, you already know where that money's going at. So I had to answer that one. I mean, unless Rekha, you got anything additional on that one? Nope. I think we covered it. Okay. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Um... I think I have answered everything. Um, so, Rakim, where can the people actually find out more about you? Uh, so I'll point people to my website. Uh, that's rakimsabri.com. On my website, and I just redesigned it, so I made it a lot more user-friendly. And You can find everything that you need, my social media, email, um, anybody wanting to work with me one-on-one, -on -one, anybody wanting to hire me to speak. Um, my Substack is on there, it's Overcoming Financial Trauma. Um, it's a free version and a paid version, so I definitely would encourage people to check that out. I send Currently, I send out one email a week on Fridays discussing financial trauma and its various manifestations. Um, so the website address for that is rockhamsabri.substack.com. Um, and then all of my social medias are my name, at rockhamsabri, and I'm everywhere people are right twitter instagram TikTok, <laughs> youtube you name it i'm there at rock Kim sabri cool all right thank you so much rakim for uh coming on to the show sharing your knowledge and actually pouring back into the people about the financial traumas that we go through hopefully i spelled your name correctly for the, <laughs> for the first time. you did but i might be... <laughs> all right everybody so Make sure you guys are start having these conversations around the dinner table. The holidays are around the corner. Actually, the holidays are always happening. You got birthdays. You got cookouts. Everybody's doing something. You got um, baby showers. You need to have these conversations about the trauma around having kids, the traumas of actually um, bringing in another generation. How are you actually feeling? Start having those conversations about how are you doing instead of just the situation looks dire. Just ask the person, how are they doing themselves? They can decide to tell you how they got to where they are and then how you can actually support them in their efforts on where they want to be. 
and not always have to be financially, but you could just be a shoulder to lean on. All right. So I just want to leave you all here today is that uh, whatever you get, make sure that you share this thing, like, subscribe. I know you hear this all the time, but it really helps uh, the show grow and I can bring on more people like Rakim uh, and so many others that you have witnessed on the show. So I want to thank you all today for coming through. All right. And y'all have a good night. And my outro music, if I can find it.